near and dear to our hearts and something that we are all, to one degree or another, concerned about, and one to which, in the church today, it seems there are very, very few answers. This is going to be part one of health and healing. I know I'll not get to all the information today, so I'll, I'll say up front it's part one. We see much sickness, plagues, if you will, of illness in our nation today, and those same diseases, sicknesses, and so on, are also rampant within the church. Pick up any prayer list from any church of God across the land today, and you will find a long list of sick people. Read the journal, you will see a list of sick people. Very rarely will you see a list of healings. Is this normal? Is it natural? Is this the way it should be, both in the nation and in the church? Do we have any answers? Are there any answers? Does God's Word show any answers? If this is not a natural situation that we're facing, why is it here? We saw far more healings 40 to 50 years ago in the Church of God than we do today. Why? What has changed? Has anything changed? Did God die? Let's turn, first of all, to Exodus 15. Exodus 15. I want to lay a background of things God has said, things God has promised. We need to understand what the promise is. A child comes to a parent and there's something that he truly desires from his heart, then he needs to make it clear what his desire is, and the parent needs to make it clear what he intends to do about it, he or she, what the conditions might be. The child needs to know what the promise is. In Exodus 16, they had not been out of, across the Red Sea for very long, and the people were already murmuring in verse 24, saying, What shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Eternal, in verse 25, And the Eternal showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. Now, if you have bitter waters, the waters of Merah is what we're talking about here, and God made them sweet, what did he do? He healed the waters. In the millennium, we know there will be no more sea, and Ezekiel 47 explains that God is going to heal the waters so that they will no more be salt. He's not going to do away with the water, he's just going to make it sweet. He's going to heal it. That's what he did on a small scale at the waters of Merah, or bitterness. And here is something he says then in verse 26. And said, if you, there is a condition, you see, if 
you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear, that is, truly listen to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, he makes a two-part covenant with them. I will put none of these diseases upon you which I have brought upon the Egyptians. That's the first part of the covenant. For I am the Eternal that heals you. There is the second part of the covenant. A, I will not lay any diseases on you, and B, I am your healer. Now that is a promise from Almighty God, something that he says he would do for his people. Now this was ancient Israel. We are modern Israel today. We are the church of God today. Does this still apply? If so, how does it apply? And what should we expect? Here is a covenant of health and healing that God made with Israel. A promise. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. I'll pick up the context here at the beginning of the chapter. Deuteronomy 7. When the Eternal your God shall bring you into the land where you go to possess it and cast you out among many na- and cast out many nations before you, and names a bunch of them, seven nations greater and mightier than you. When the Eternal your God shall deliver them before you, you shall smite them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Neither shall you make marriages with them. Your daughter shall not give unto his son, nor his daughter shall you take to your son. For they will turn away your son from following me, that you may serve other gods, or that they may. So will the anger of the Eternal be kindled against you and destroy you suddenly. Did Israel follow through with this instruction? No, they did not. They allowed many of those peoples to live, and they did indeed marry with them, have children with them, and their hearts were turned from God. When we came to this nation, it was a nation of Israel that God gave to our forefathers. We are Israel today as we were Israel then. Had we done what God told them to do when they went to that promised land, when we came into this promised land, we would not have racial difficulties in this land today, nor would I have any Indian blood in me, which I have some. Nor would this nation have had near as great an opportunity to turn from God as it has. Ancient Israel did not follow God's instruction, nor has modern Israel, and I submit neither has the church. Now here's the reason God said this. He would not cause those peoples to be destroyed without reason. Now God was not going to cut those people off from salvation either. We understand the rest of the dead live not till a thousand years were over in Revelation 20, and that there is an order of resurrections that those people will have an opportunity at some time in the future. And had the Israel killed them as God said to do, they still would have had an opportunity at salvation, but God wasn't working with them yet. 
but he was working with Israel. Notice verse 6. For you are an holy people unto the eternal your God. The eternal your God has chosen you to be a special people to himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. That is recounted in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, where he calls us a purchased people, a royal priesthood, and sets us aside as being special to God. In that particular context, Peter is talking to whom? Physical Israel? No. He's speaking to the church. So this context, what God told ancient Israel, Peter brought forth, and righteously so, to the New Testament church. We are called to be a holy and a special people to God. When anyone looks at us, when anyone looks at God's church, they should be able to see a marked contrast between us and the rest of the world. Because we are a special and a holy people who do everything that is in this book. That is what we are called out to do. To be very, very different than the world around us. We are told, be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed, utterly changed from what you were to something else. The world recognizes their own. When they look at us, they should not see their own. They should see something special, something holy, and something different. The Eternal did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. We're told in 1 Corinthians that we are the weak in the base, and that his little flock was not to fear. So God always is called a very small flock, and told them not to worry, but to trust in him. It wasn't because you were great in number, or magnificent in looks, or mentality, but because the Eternal loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn to your fathers, that is, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has the Eternal brought you out with a mighty hand, this is a reference to coming out of Egypt, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Here again, we see the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread theme coming up. When did God redeem you and me? Through Christ's death on the 14th. And he redeemed and sanctified and set apart the firstborn of Israel on the 14th, when he delivered them with a mighty hand. That is when he brought them forth out of Egypt. Let's not get back into that too far. Verse 9, know therefore that the eternal your God, he is God, the faithful God. Now, that's interesting, that just occurred to me. In the movie, The Ten Commandments, they didn't follow the script in the Bible too closely, and Pharaoh survived the Red Sea, remember? Yul Brynner came back and sat on his throne, and he mumbled something about Moses' God is God. 
The lesson was not for Pharaoh. What does it say here? Know, for, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God. The lesson was for Israel. The lesson is for us. We are to know that God is God. That God fulfills his promises. Now we saw already a covenant that God offered of health and healing. But, do we believe it? That is a question we will consider before we're done. Know that God is God, the faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. There have not been a thousand generations yet. And God is still faithful, and he will keep his covenant and show mercy with them, if they do their part. Verse 10, And repays them that hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hates him, and will repay him to his face. I think we're beginning to see some answers already, and I didn't want to get to the answer section yet. But it's sort of mingled in. We'll get to that more directly later on. Verse 12, Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you hearken to these judgments, and keep, and do them, that the Eternal your God shall keep unto you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers, and he will love you. Now, we want God to love us, don't we? And bless you, that we desire, and multiply you, and he will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land. Is our land blessed today? Are we getting all kinds of diseases in the crops? What about the fruit of the womb? Children are being born now with cancer. They're being born with all kinds of diseases and sicknesses and weird things. Remember the thalidomide baby thing? Where one drug caused many babies to be born looking like platypuses instead of children. You shall be blessed above all people. Remember this is brought forward by Peter into the New Testament. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle, and the Eternal will take away from you all sickness. There's a promise of healing. And will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you know, upon you, but will lay them upon all them that hate you. There is a reiteration of what he said there in Exodus 15. Now let's go, if you will, to Deuteronomy 28. This is a memory scripture for most of the church. Deuteronomy 28, one of the blessings and cursings chapters. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, And it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently to the voice of the Eternal your God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command you this day, that the Eternal your God will set you on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you shall hearken to the voice of the Eternal, your God. God will send those blessings and they will overtake you. They will catch up with you. Verse 9, the Eternal shall establish you and holy people to himself 
as he has sworn to you, if you shall keep the commandments of the eternal your God and walk in his ways. And all people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. Now, I submit that that is going to happen with the church. We've seen many scriptures in the prophecies and in the New Testament, which are also prophecies, which indicate God is going to call together a faithful remnant. It will be a light set upon a hill, all gathered together, and its leaders, the two anointed ones of Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11, will go out and bring plagues upon the world, much as Moses and God did in Egypt, and the whole world will fear and hate them and us with all their heart. So this certainly comes forward to the New Testament. And the Eternal shall make you plenteous in goods, and in the fruit of your body, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground, in the land which the Eternal swore to you, your fathers, to give you. In the verse 12, you shall lend to many nations, and you shall not borrow. Well, we're borrowing right now as a nation very, very heavily from other nations. We don't think of ourselves that way, do we? Aren't we always giving foreign aid and so on to other nations, lending to them? We are borrowing far more than we are lending. And the way that we do it is sell treasury notes to other nations and other peoples. Japan buys billions and billions of dollars worth. China is now. And it keeps us afloat because we're spending far more than we have. So they spend the money that they have made off us to buy our treasury notes. Those are loans is what they are. They loan us money in exchange for a piece of paper that we say we will make good on. That's what a loan is. God tells us not to borrow from other nations. We're in hock up to here. Where do you think they're going to get that $417 billion that they just appropriated for homeland defense and war making? Half a trillion dollars nearly. Beyond my mind, my comprehension. The Lord shall make you the head and not the tail, and you shall be above only, and you shall not be beneath. All right, let's go to verse 15. But it shall come to pass, if you will not hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And he talks about all the different curses he would bring upon Israel. We have come to see that those curses have come upon the church, too. Verse 21, the Eternal shall make the pestilence cleave to you until he have consumed you from off the land where you go to possess it. Not one stone left upon another, remember? The Eternal shall smite you with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation and with an extreme burning and with a sword and with blasting and with mildew and they shall pursue you until you perish. 
We know in Ezekiel 5, God told Israel that they would die a third in famine and pestilence. Pestilence is disease. A third by the sword, and a third would go into captivity, and many of those then would also die. Let's go on down. Uh, let's see where do I want to pick this up. Verse 60, well, verse 59. Then the Eternal will make your plagues wonderful, or huge, monstrous plagues. And the plagues of your seed, even great plagues, and of long continuance, and sore sicknesses. Is our land beset with sore sicknesses today? Do we just get a little fever, or do we have sore sicknesses like cancer, like diabetes, like heart disease, that are killing our people in droves? They now estimate that one in three people will have cancer before they die. One in three. Let's go down the road here. Every third one, statistically, is going to have cancer. Also, every sickness and every plague, which is not written in the book of this law, them will the eternal bring upon you until you be destroyed, and you shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of heaven for multitude. So God is going to bring sicknesses and plagues that aren't mentioned in this book. Do we have sicknesses and plagues today that aren't mentioned in this book? We're unheard of when this book was written. But now there are plagues upon the nation, and the church, it seems, is really no different statistically than the nation. Kind of scary, isn't it? Aren't we a special and holy people to God? Why would this be? Let's go to Second Chronicles now. Second Chronicles, chapter 21. This is about uh, Jehoram in chapter 9, king of Israel. Then Jehoram went forth with his princes and all his chariots with him, and he rose up by night and smote the Edomites which compassed him in, or which compassed him in, and the captains of the chariots. And the Edomites revolted under the hand of Judah to this day. Uh, and Jehoram had made high places in the mountains of Judah, verse 11, and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit fornication and compelled Judah thereto. Some serious problems here. And there came a writing to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the eternal God of David your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, nor in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go a-whoring, like to the whoredoms of the house of Ahab, and also have slain your brethren of your father's house, which were better than yourself. Behold, with a great plague will the eternal smite your people, and your children, and your wives, and all your goods. And you shall have great sickness by disease of your bowels, until your bowels fall out by reason of the sickness day by day. His intestines would fall out, because God smote him with sickness. Moreover, the Eternal stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and of the Arabians that were near the Ethiopians. 
And they came up to Judah and broke into it and carried away all the substance that was found in the king's house and his sons also and his wives, so that there was never a son left him save Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. And after all this, the Eternal smote him in his bowels with an incurable disease. And it came to pass that in the process of time, after the end of two years, his bowels fell out by reason of his sickness, so he died of sore disease. And that was the end of Jehoram. God promises healing. God also smites with sickness. Let's go to 2 Kings 20. 2 Kings 20. And here I want verse 1. This is also recounted in Isaiah as an end-time prophecy. I'll read it here in the original prophecy. In those days was Hezekiah sick to death. He was going to die, on his deathbed in other words. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Eternal, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Now Hezekiah had been essentially a righteous person. But if you'll recall the story, after having done Passover correctly and keeping the second Passover and so on, and kicking the idols out, that at some point his heart was lifted up. He got vain, he got egocentric, he got self-important, and left his humility behind, and his end was not going to be good. Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Eternal, saying, I beseech you, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before you in truth and with a mature, loyal heart, and have done that which is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass, before Isaiah was gone out into the middle of the court, that the word of the Eternal came to him, saying, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus says the Eternal, the God of David your father, I've heard your prayer, I've seen your tears, behold, I will heal you, on the third day you shall go up unto the house of the Eternal. Uh, and I will add to your days fifteen years, and I, will live, and I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs, and they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. So he had a very serious boil that was life-threatening, and the figs drew it out. So even though God gave him that, there was a natural remedy that was allowed. I think that's worth noting. Uh, what does God allow and what does God not allow? And perhaps we will get into that somewhat before this series is over. But God did add to his life 15 years and gave him a sign that he would do so. And he answered immediately, didn't he? Before Isaiah could give, even go out of the house or the palace, an answer came. God can answer immediately if God chooses to, and sometimes people wait for answers. God healed. That's 
one of the main points I wanted us to get there from the story of Hezekiah. God is capable of healing. God has healed in the past. Psalm 103 now. Psalm 103, one we probably know well. Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. David is saying here that we should continually count our blessings and not forget his benefits. We should remember those. We should, shouldn't we, be able to partake of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowned you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Here is a promise that God is our healer. He is the God who heals all your diseases. Actually, one of his names is God, our healer. God has many names, and that is one title, one name, that he has taken to himself. He is our healer. Why, then, don't we see much healing today? Isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? A lot of people are perplexed as to why there are not healings. Or not very many healings, maybe I should say. Why? What should our attitude be toward the sick? What is God's attitude toward the sick? The sick? Uh, let's look at that quickly in Psalm 35. Psalm 35. David was a man after God's own heart. Here in Psalm 35, 13, uh, he's talking about false witnesses in verse 11, who rose up and they laid to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, these enemies, when his enemies were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into my own bosom. So prayer and fasting is something that God would have us do for sickness. That is the attitude we should have toward it. Notice Matthew 25 in that connection. Matthew 25. Another very familiar scripture. I want to use it in this context. Speaking of when Christ uh, returns. Verse 35, I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The righteous will answer, when, when did we do that? We've never even seen you before. And he said, when you did it to the least of my brethren, you've done it to me, in verse 40. So our attitude toward the sick should be to help in any way we can, to serve them, to visit them, 
to help in whatever way. That is a righteous approach. You see, God, then, is very, very concerned for those who are sick, right? And if his concern is so great that our treatment of the sick symbolizes our relationship with him, then this is a very, very important issue with God. And we won't be in the kingdom of God unless we have his attitude toward people who have the problems that are mentioned here, whether it be without clothes, food, shelter, sick, or whatever. If God is that concerned with the sick, why is there then so much sickness? It's like the world looks at it and says, if there's a God, why is all there... Why is there so much war and fighting and killing and drugs and dope and thievery and on and on and on it goes? The world seemingly, seemingly cannot understand that. Now you and I can give our pat answer that God is only working with a few right now, that this is a day of salvation. Romans 11 shows that those people are, are concluded in unbelief until the time that Christ returns and they will be have the scales stripped from their eyes, and so on. So we understand why there is war, sickness, death, and why did God let little Johnny die, as we have an article years ago in The Plain Truth. And that, this is the answer that was given. What did Christ one, once say? I believe it was Christ. said, Physician, heal yourself. We've got a pat answer for why these people out in the world are having sickness and death sorrow upon sorrow, why are we? Why are we? Physician, heal yourself. Maybe we need to find some answers. This is a monumental subject. There are a lot of people sick right here in this room. I can look out and see a lot of people with some very serious diseases and illnesses. I can look in the mirror and see someone that ain't too healthy sometimes either. What about it? Now, I'm not going to go into, at this moment, uh, a bunch of scriptures about Christ healing when he was here on this earth. We'll probably get to those next week, God willing and show his attitude and what he did. We've already seen a few about God's attitude and what our attitude should be towards sickness and that he is very concerned about it. We'll read some of those scriptures next week. Right now, I want to go into it from a little bit different standpoint. The ministry is very much involved. This is something we need to consider. Let's see... That in Matthew 10, or beginning in Matthew 10. He gave his disciples there in chapter 10 a commission. When he called in his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now God gave power to those disciples to do that. And they indeed went out and did that. Why do we see a futile ministry for the most part today? 
Why do we see so many anointings for which it seems there is no answer and no healing? This is embarrassing for me to bring up, but it needs to be brought up. Why don't we see more? Are there some deep underlying reasons? He told them not to go to the Gentiles, verse 6, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. This is a command. It's an instruction. Something that he expected to be done. Why don't we have more casting out of demons? Why don't we have more healings than we do? Is something missing? Is something wrong? Is this right, good, and natural that it be this way? If there is an apostleship somewhere, should not the signs of an apostle follow? I don't think we've even come close to what will happen in the end time yet. I don't think we even came close under Herbert Armstrong. Yes, there were some pretty dramatic healings back in the 50s and early 60s, and even before in the 40s and late 30s for that matter. God did intervene. So there were some signs and wonders done, miracles come, that came from God. I saw some with my own eyes. I experienced some in my own body. And then my brothers and my sisters and family and people I knew. They were happening. Not to the extent of Acts 2, 3, 4, and 5, but happening. And I see far less of it today than I saw then. What has happened? Why? Let's go to Luke 4. Luke 4. Verse 17. There was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Eternal is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on it. And in his own country, I think this is this where it shows that he could only heal a few sick folk. He couldn't do great miracles because in his own country, the prophet had no honor. People didn't believe. Now there's a very important key that we will emphasize later on. So there is a commission to heal, to help, and that scripture there represents both mental healing and physical healing. Physically blind could also mean spiritually blind, but also to heal the brokenhearted. See, that's, that's mental and emotional healing that is brought up specifically. Luke 9, while we're here, Luke 9, verse 1. 
Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Another repeat of what we saw in Matthew. Uh, let's go to Philippians 2. Philippians. Paul wanted to come see the Philippians. Verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I, I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I suppose it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brethren, companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that he had heard, or you had heard, that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nearly to death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So Epaphroditus was healed. That's something God wished, something God willed, something God did. Why don't we have more of that today? That's God's will and purpose. Let's go to uh, Acts 5. Book of Acts, verse 5. Or chapter 5, I mean. Now this was after uh, Pentecost in Acts 2. They'd had the Ananias and Sapphira episode where they lied to the ministry, to the Holy Spirit, in the ministry. Verse 14, And believers were the more added to the eternal multitudes, both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. Then came also a multitude out of the cities round about to Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, mental problems, demon problems. And they were healed, every one, not a few, every one. Peter's shadow passing over people healed them. What incredible power God gave to show his name and his glory and also his attitude about sickness. Sickness isn't natural. God did not make Adam and Eve susceptible to any kind of illness in the Garden of Eden. They didn't get a draft and catch cold because they were naked. Sickness is an unnatural state. God intended from the beginning that our bodies be healthy, that our minds be healthy, that we not be sick. But there's an awful lot of sickness in the world. God didn't intend that. Why does it exist? Why is it there? Chapter 9 of Acts. Chapter 9. Verse 33. Uh, Peter passed, came down to the saints at Lydia, and there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, uh, Jesus Christ, make you whole. Arise and make your bed. And he rose immediately. Right, uh, Peter using the example that Christ had used, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And it worked. Just told him, get up, take your bed, get out of here, be healed. 
And he was. God was sitting in heaven. It wasn't Peter that did anything other than tell him to get up, but God did the healing. So God is very, very much in the healing business. Acts 19. Acts 19. Now here was a method that Paul used for healing. Verse 11, Acts 19. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. So it wasn't just the original twelve disciples, but this was passed on in the ministry. Paul did special miracles from God. So that from his body were brought to the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. He couldn't get around everywhere. He had I mean, you walked, you rode a four-legged animal, or you went by ship. They didn't have airplanes, trains, and automobiles then. So you had to do things in a different way. Sometimes we cannot. I simply cannot fly everywhere someone needs anointed. So he anointed claws with oil, apparently and sent those to people by mail or by carrier or however they could get it there, by ship, and people were healed, and demons were cast out from afar. I remember as a child, we would either write a letter to Pasadena, because there were no local churches, or we would call Pasadena if it were a truly severe situation, and sometimes as soon as the letter was sent, or the call was made, healing would occur. Before the cloth was even anointed and sent, healings would occur. So it happened many, many times with myself, with my brothers, with my sisters, with my parents. And I saw it with other families and family members as well. So it wasn't our family. It was something God was doing, and he was doing it across the country and even around the world later on. What did we possibly have then, what could we possibly have had then, that we might be lacking now? If God's our healer, and that's one of, our na one of his names, one of the things that he has taken to himself, and we're seeing examples of things that he has done. Why not now? Why not us? Why not the church? Let's go to Acts 28. Acts 28. These are hard questions. We'll find that there are some very hard answers as well. People often question it. Well, why isn't it? And then they'll give you their reasons why they think it might not, or they'll just simply have a perplexed, mystified look and murmur and not have an answer. If we have an unnatural condition, shouldn't there be an answer? Shouldn't we be able to find it? And if we find it, should we not be able to apply it and have things change? 
Matthew, I mean Acts 28. Let's go to verse 8. Well, even before this, you read up a few verses before then, Paul was, had been shipwrecked. God didn't prevent that. But he was on the island gathering up sticks and got bit by a poisonous viper and should have died. Didn't even get sick. He shook it in the fire. You can kill snakes, poisonous snakes. He didn't set it free and call Greenpeace to come feed it. Shook it in the fire. And then they thought Paul was a god because if they had been bitten by a poisonous viper, they'd have died. Well, hadn't Christ said, you eat poison or whatever, you won't be hurt? I don't think we ought to start handling rattlesnakes like they did back in Kentucky and Tennessee. And just to prove that, I think we'd be tempting God. But under certain circumstances, do you think you could count on God causing you not to be hurt if you were bitten? He believes that? How hard is that to believe? I guess we'd better find out, hadn't we? Verse 7, In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, his name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. None of these people were converted. None of these people were in the church. And yet God healed them. We are in the church and very often are not healed. Does that make sense? Can we make sense of it? Let's go to James. Well, wait a minute. Is there another one here I want? Oh, back in chapter 9, I didn't uh, read all I wanted to read. Acts 9. Verse 36. After he had healed Aeneas, or, or his, uh, yeah, Aeneas. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, dead, cold, inert. Whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And for as much as Lydia was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent to him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the windows, uh, widows stood by him weeping and showing the goat coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth. Now you notice Christ did the same thing with Lazarus. He got everybody out. Peter did the same thing here. Why? He was going to attempt something 
the required total trust and belief in God. He did not want anyone there who lacked faith and trust, would be my assessment of why he put them out and why Christ put people out. You know, Christ could only do a few miracles in his native land. He healed a few sick folk, but not many miracles, because even he couldn't, it says, because of lack of belief. They did not accept him for who he really was. I put the question to you and me. Do we truly understand who God really is? Do we, can we put our entire trust in him? When I was baptized, I turned my life over to God. I promised him that I was his in sickness and in health. I promised him as Paul did that whether I lived or whether I died, I belonged to him. That is the covenant I made when I went under that water. That I would totally trust him with my life. I wonder how many there are today who made that covenant, who have reneged on it. And perhaps... That is a partial reason we are where we are today. But Peter, putting them all out, kneeled down and prayed, and turning into the body said, Tabitha, arise. Do you think he would have said that if he didn't really believe it was going to happen? Wouldn't it sound sort of silly and phony? to say to this cold, stiff, dead body, Tabitha, arise. He believed it with all his heart. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Eternal. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon a Tanner. Now this was probably done for a very good reason. I don't think God expects or intends for most people who die to be resurrected in this life. But that was a time when God was calling a lot of people in the book of Acts. And many, many miracles were done in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit first came because God was starting a calling work. Later on, there were not nearly so many miracles. But during that calling time, there was even a resurrection or two. Will that happen again? I firmly believe that it will. Peter thought what was happening in Acts 2 was the beginning of the end of the age and the day of the Lord, as written in the book of Joel. It wasn't, but he thought it was, because he saw things happening that Joel said would happen at the end, and that wasn't the end. 
So Joel wrote it about the end, and Peter mistook when it still has to happen. The things that were done in Acts have to occur again. They have not as yet. I do not know of any resurrections that have occurred in the modern-day church. Maybe there were somewhere, but I'm sure if they had been bona fide, absolute, actual happenings, we would have all known about it, don't you? It's going to happen again. Let's go to James. Look at James. This is one we all know. It is the instruction that we often follow. Verse 13, James 5. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing songs. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Eternal, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults, your weaknesses, your sicknesses, your diseases, one to another. That's the context, not all of your spiritual sins necessarily. Context here is sickness. Pray one for another that you may be healed. That's what we saw David doing back in the Psalms, right? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The prayer needs to be effective, it needs to be fervent, and it needs to come from a righteous man. There are some conditions here to the prayer having good results. It has to be a prayer of faith, a prayer of belief, a prayer of expectancy. Now, if we ever had that in the church of God and as his people, have we lost it? Have we seen so many anointings with failure, it appears, to heal, that we no longer really expect anything to happen? And we are anointed because it says to do so, but our heart, our belief, our mind may not be entirely in it. And we don't really, truly expect anything to happen. If we don't, will it? God says no. Is the fault then with God? No, he can heal. He has healed. We've recounted already examples of how he did. Even raised the dead. Is he lacking? Is his arm shortened that he cannot heal? Or his ear deaf that he cannot hear, or his eyes blind that he cannot see? No. There's another problem. Maybe we are not effective in our prayer 
because we are not doing those things that we have covenanted with God. Maybe we are falling short of that covenant. We'll examine some scriptures about that. Elijah, verse 17, was a man subject to to like passions as we are. In other words, Elijah was not a giant among men. Elijah was not head and shoulders above everybody. Elijah was nothing special in the respect of someone you would just stand back in awe of if you saw him. He was a man who had the same passions, the same problems, the same sins, the same difficulties, the same attitudes that you and I have. He was subject to all the human nature that you and I are subject to. He was weak. He was human. He was fallible. At times he doubted. He sat out at the brook, remember, where the crows fed him, and said, Oh, woe is me, I'm the only one in his self-righteousness, his self-pity, and his pity party. And God said, I've got 7,000 more, Elijah, that you don't even know about. Get over your pity part. He had problems just like you and I do. Okay? And he prayed earnestly. That is part of effective prayer. His earnest, fervent prayer. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. I don't know that that means the entire earth, but certainly that earth around where he was, it didn't rain. And all the people of Israel, that's whom God was involved with and uh, was working with. So upon Israel there, I think this is implying, it didn't rain upon the earth. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruits. He was just like us, but he prayed fervently, and he believed it. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. He prayed again, and it did rain. Remember the little cloud that finally appeared? Kept sending the lad over, I think it was, to look at the cloud. Finally, a little bitty white cloud showed up. He stayed with it, and it happened. Now, let's see, it's 1.30. I want to get into another section here. Well, let's use a couple of examples. First of all, Second Timothy four. Second Timothy four. Verse twenty. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. Now, Paul had people healed by all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles, and yet there came a time when he had to leave 
Trophimus sick, wasn't healed. What are the reasons? Why? God had been doing so much healing. God is working with his people. Have you ever noticed that when things are going well, you're feeling well, everything's clam happy? How, how is a clam happy? Well, their shells are attached together right at the back with a very small attachment. So it's like they smile all the way around to the back of their shell. So happy as a clam at high tide means one that is in the high tide, the predators can't get to him, and he can open his mouth wide and let the seawater wash through. So he's happy at high tide, and he smiles clear back to here. Now, when you're that happy, how much are you impelled, compelled, to seek God? When everything is going your way and hunky-dory, not very much. When everything is going well, what do we tend to do? We tend to not pray as much. We tend to not study our Bibles as much. We tend to look after ourselves more. We tend to forget God. I wonder if there are any clues there. To a church who thought everything was going fine, we're on our way into the kingdom of God, we have the truth, aren't we special? And what happens? We may be about to get our afternoon thunder shower. The skylights were just closed with, uh, uh, with light. Let me turn the light on just a second. Nothing happens. Well, there's light at the back, but these up front didn't come on. Maybe I didn't flip it. Now the front ones are on and the back ones are off. Nelson, will you work on this? I guess these front ones are probably enough for most everybody. Now where was I? Did we find ourselves in a situation that God was not happy with? Revelation 3, perhaps, is a good place to start. Revelation 3. Verse 14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginnings of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Everything's happy, happy. And know not that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Blind is an illness, is a sickness. It's a problem physically. It's also a problem spiritually. 
Now, God is far more concerned with our spiritual health than he is our physical health. But one of the things that gets our attention is when our physical health is bad. When things are not hunky-dory in our lives, we tend to turn to God. So what does God do when he wants to get our attention? He sends adversity, doesn't he? Do you think God is trying to get the church's attention today? Has he sent adversity? Aren't we scattered? Aren't we in a state of utter disrepair? There are many who think that they are the only ones who are okay, but are not na- they don't think that they are naked and miserable and blind, but they are fully clothed spiritually. But here he's talking to people who have that very attitude. They just don't know they're that way. So he has to put us through something to show us that. And that is precisely what he's doing. What did he do with Job when he needed to get Job's attention and teach Job something? He sicked the devil on him. The devil did the work. But God is the one who generated and allowed and, in fact, directed this Satan to do it. Satan, if you notice Job, he called his attention to it. And then God allowed Satan to do anything he wanted to to Job except kill him. And he was smitten with death of his children boils all over his body to the point he was in such abject misery he could hardly stand it. His wealth was all taken away. And through all this, what happens? God finally got his attention, didn't he? And when he got his attention, and Job's attitude changed, and he says, now I know who God is. Didn't I ask you a question earlier today? Do we really know who God is, what he is, what he can and will do? Are we totally in understanding of God? Or are we lacking somewhat? God asked Job some pretty serious questions. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Look at this. Look at what's been made. Where were you when I made these giant creatures that were on the earth? Where were you? Oh, well, don't guess I was around. He had to see God for what God really is. And I don't think we fully comprehend what God is. Now, Job was essentially a righteous man. And we're struggling with even being that. Do we fully comprehend who and what God is? If we did, would we be as we are? How much difference is is there between us and the world around us? How much difference is there, really?
Let's go to Second Chronicles 16. Second Chronicles 16. Now here was a man who was essentially a righteous king. His name was Asa. Second Chronicles 16. I think that this is a very, very important story for us to understand. Verse 7 of Second Chronicles 16. And at that time Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria, and not relied on the eternal your God, therefore is the host of the king of Assyria escaped out of your hand. Now, even though he had been known as a righteous king for the most part, he looked elsewhere than to God for the answer to his problems. Now, our God is a jealous God. He does not want us looking elsewhere for the solution to our problems. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you did rely on the Eternal, he delivered them into your hand. He says, look at the contrast. Here was a big army. You relied on God. He solved the problem. Now, with the king of Syria, you did not, or you relied on the king of Syria instead of God as your ally, and your enemies escaped you. What a contrast. For the eyes of the eternal run to and fro throughout the whole earth. God is watching everything that goes on, watching every human being. He even knows how many hairs you have in your head. He knows every sparrow that falls to the earth. What an incredible mind. What incredible consciousness of everything that is going on. And Christ used that as an example to say, won't he consider you? He considers your hair and a sparrow falling? Doesn't he also consider you? The eyes of the eternal run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God is looking for people who will turn to him, and he is wanting and wishing to bless them if they begin to do just that. He wants to show himself strong. Herein you have done foolishly, therefore from henceforth you shall have wars. Because you allied yourself with someone other than God, you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in a prison house. <laughs> People often do that, isn't it? Kill the messenger. Brought the right message, but they'll kill the messenger. Do it all the time. Always have. For he was enraged with him because of this thing. He didn't look at himself and say, man, I goofed. I better repent and turn to God with my whole heart so that he'll bless me and do like he did with the Ethiopians and the Lubims. Instead, he got mad at the guy that told him God isn't with you anymore. Do you think that it is a message that people in the church today like? Would anyone like me, such as I am, stand up and tell them 
you are not following God with your whole heart, therefore this, 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 and this has happened to you? Is the message that we got out of the minor prophets and the major prophets, and in fact throughout the whole Bible, popular with the church? Are the phone lines and the emails just burning up with people who want, have heard about this apes and want to get them so that they can understand why this has happened to the church? No way, because most of them think that they're the only good people around, that this is somebody else's problem. They don't want to hear this message. They don't think it applies to them anyway. A few want to hear it. God even told Ezekiel right straight out, you're going to have to be harder headed than the people. He says, I'll make your forehead like flint because people will butt heads with you and they won't like what you have to say. O Jerusalem that stoneth the prophets. The church today does not want to hear the message of the prophets as written in God's Word. Must apply to someone else. For he was in a rage with him because of this thing, and Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. He didn't just oppress the guy that got the message, he just got mad at everybody. Mad at the world. Because he was not in favor with God, and therefore he would lash out at others. You ever seen anyone do that? Have you ever done that? Do sometimes we lash out at those we love the most because of our own frustrations? Yeah, we do. And behold, the acts of Asa, first and last, lo, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Asa, in the thirty and ninth year of his reign, was diseased in his feet. Doesn't sound life-threatening to you and me, foot disease, but it can be. In fact, diabetes often causes disease in the feet, lack of circulation, gangrene and amputation, and it just works its way right on up through the body and kills you. So we do have a modern counterpart, perhaps, of foot disease, maybe caused elsewhere in the body, but it certainly kills a lot of people as a result of foot problems, leg problems. Until his disease was exceeding great, yet in his disease... He sought not to the eternal, but to the physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers and died in the one and fortieth year of his reign. So he was struck with this disease and suffered with it for two years and died. Now is this implying that God was not happy with the way Asa handled this problem? I think it is. It says... Yet, in his disease, he sought not to the eternal, but to the physicians, and died. God did not intervene because of the course of action that Asa took. I think that this story needs a great deal of attention and thought. Especially in this modern world, where the world is our solution to our problems. Isn't it interesting that our society has turned to chemicals to feed us? 
We have chemicals on our farms. We have chemicals in our cans and in our bottles and in our packages and in our cardboard. You go into a grocery store and almost everything that is there, it seems, has been tampered with, with all manner of chemicals, sometimes a list nearly as long as your arm, all kinds of refined things, treated things, misused and abused things, and as a result of all these chemicals that are introduced into our bodies, we have become a very, very sick culture. I have stated before that I believe that the things Americans are ingesting in the world too, for that matter, because our sins have scattered around the world, are worse for us physically than unclean meat. People have eaten that, eaten that for thousands of years and lived and not suffered a great deal. I'm not saying we ought to eat them, no. But what we have introduced into our bodies in the last 150 years are worse for us, obviously, and are killing more people than even unclean meats. They feed us all these chemicals, and then when we need treated, what do they do? They give us a whole different set of chemicals. They try to solve the problems they created by giving us more chemicals. Is that right and good? I'm almost at the end of the tape. They tell me back there, I think this is a good time to stop. We'll consider these things next week, God willing, and see why we are not healed.